Well, welcome everybody. Today is unbelievably May 12th, 2021. I'm Trey Dobson, Chief Medical Officer at Southwestern Vermont Medical Center and an emergency medicine physician with Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health. And this is Medical Matters Weekly, a show about the aspects of healthcare that matter to you most. And on the show today, I'm very excited. We're going to be discussing tick-borne illnesses with our state public health veterinarian, Dr. Natalie Quitt. Thank you for joining us, Natalie. Thank you for having me. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? I should have asked you that prior. Okay, awesome. So Natalie leads the health department's zoonotic and vector-borne disease program, including surveillance, prevention, investigation, and response, which is an incredibly awesome title. Do you actually have that on your business card? <laughs> no, there's not enough room. I think state public health veterinarian is long enough for a business card. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, she received her doctorate of veterinary medicine from the University of Illinois, master's of public health from the University of Minnesota. She's worked as an epidemic intelligence service officer for the CDC and um, has worked as a small animal practitioner, a wildlife medicine volunteer. She must have started at the age of four to get uh, all of that done. So just start, just tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up and then how you ended up in Vermont. Sure. Um, well, I was not born and raised in Vermont. I was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. So definitely an urban environment. Um, but I always loved uh, animals and the outdoors and always had a menagerie of different pets. So naturally, I always wanted to be a veterinarian. Um, and as you said, my background, I went to the vet school and then practiced small animal medicine for five years. Um, and during that time, volunteered in wildlife medicine and got really into One Health um, and, uh, worked towards a master's, of uh, public health during that time. And then I had the privilege of doing a fellowship at CDC, um, as you said, called the epidemic intelligence service before my current role as state public health veterinarian at the, uh, Vermont department of health. And that's what brought me to Vermont. It was a mixture of the timing of finishing up my fellowship and the, uh, opening of the state public health veterinarian job, which is, um, kind of was my, um, Goal after the fellowship. And then I liked uh, Vermont for its access to outdoors, its uh, smaller population and, um, and all I had to, had to offer. That's great. So are you a trail runner or a hiker or a climber? What, what do you mean when you say outdoor activity? Yeah. So I really like doing, um, and particularly during pandemic times is uh, a good time to get into the outdoors, although I always love the outdoors. So um, I really like hiking, um, running and like you said, trail running, camping, um, biking, particularly gravel riding, um, which is a new thing I learned about in Vermont with all the gravel roads. Uh, and in the winter time, most, most often cross country skiing and all of these activities I do with my dog, um, include her on all those. And then I also like to read and watch movies and the horror zombie genre. And um, I can't wait for post-pandemic times where I can partake in karaoke again. Oh, that is awesome. So were you stuck in Atlanta when you did your fellowship for the CDC? No, uh, luckily, I mean, there are, there are different assignments you can do um, with the Epidemic Intelligence Service. Um, most are in Atlanta, as you say, different um, headquarters positions. I was in a headquarters position, but in the CDC office in Fort Collins, Colorado, where they have their division of vector-borne diseases. And I was in, they have two branches in that office. And I was in the bacterial diseases branch that focuses on bacterial diseases of tick-borne um, origin. 
So when you say vector-borne, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about what that means or what that means to you and what that may mean to them? Sure. Vector-borne diseases mean those diseases that can be um, transmitted to humans through an arthropod or insect vector. So you, that individual or human needs to be um, bitten or exposed to that uh, vector to be exposed to the, to the pathogen that that vector is carrying. So ticks being one. Yep. Mosquitoes, Mosquito. another. And then, um, believe it or not, uh, there are some others like um, fleas in particular. Oh, yeah. And uh, bubonic plague and some of those other ones that we, we hear about and actually still exist, but not around these parts, but maybe where you were in Colorado. Right. Yeah. Luckily, we don't have plague here and not so much tularemia, but um, we did see those out, out west for sure. Sure. And actually, um, where I was in, in Memphis, Tennessee, we used to see a lot of tularemia and, and then you come up here and you don't, but we also have so much Lyme disease, so much tick-borne illness, which is what we're going to kind of go into today. Um, you know, a lot of people <laughs> feel that the tick-borne illnesses are, are new, quite new in Vermont, but they've probably been here for longer than that. Can you just tell us a little bit about the history and you can just ad lib on this uh, question as much as you want. Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess, they are pretty new, but I guess the oldest one that we see in this area uh, is Lyme disease. And that was first identified in the 1970s in a place called Lyme, Connecticut. And that's where um, it was first discovered. And at that time, the etiologic agent or the actual pathogen wasn't known, but there was a cluster of arthritis-like symptoms in children. Um, and not until late seventies was it identified that that syndrome in children was being caused by Ixodes scapularis or the black-legged tick, which is the most abundant tick that we have in the Northeast. And then not until the eighties was the actual bacterial agent discovered to cause Lyme disease. And that is Borrelia burgdorferi. And so I would say as far as Vermont goes, reports of Lyme disease were rare. Um, and in the early 1990s, the health department only received about a dozen or fewer confirmed cases of the illness each year. And since that time, the number of reported cases has increased substantially. It's now common to see over 500 cases each year. Um, at most, we've had just over a thousand um, in 2017, and I think in 2019. And so since then, other tick-borne diseases have emerged in Vermont. We have babesiosis, anaplasmosis and Borrelia miyamotoi disease. And um, emergence of these diseases are attributed to many things, um, the tick distribution and ecology, the pathogen life cycle, um, the inter intermediate hosts or mammal distribution and movement and human behavior. Um, and of course you only have human disease where there are infected ticks um, and that, where they come into contact. And so in Vermont, we have, we have, we have black-legged ticks in every county, um, but geographically, uh, the southern half of the state is most affected by the, the tick-borne diseases we see in Vermont. And over time, we've been monitoring those, um, and we see that reports of um, illnesses are starting slowly kind of creeping northward through the state. Mm, right. So it's important to remember to prevent uh, tick bites wherever you are in the state. And you know, you just, that's exactly right. That's the key. That's what I've also learned as both an emergency medicine physician and a trail runner with dogs, that uh, prevention, we can talk about recognition and we will, uh, we can talk about treatment, 
but if we can just prevent it from the onset, that's so important. And I do want to get into that. I'm actually going to go right into something real quick that I think sometimes we avoid. And you brought it up. And that is tick-borne illness uh, first occurred in the 70s and was sort of recognized slowly uh, but because it took a time to recognize and because people were suffering uh, and it took a while for uh, physicians, veterinarians and others to understand it, there, there developed this sort of doubt among the public and some um, concerns with trust. And that unfortunately still holds true today. But I can say, fortunately, we now understand great deal about the disease. The, everything you've said in these first 10 minutes was not known even, even 20 years ago, or at least not wild, uh, widely known. And so uh, physicians and healthcare providers uh, are um, trained to recognize the, the disease and trained to treat the disease. And we do have some questions at the end about treatment, which we can go into. Um, let's just talk about some of those non-Lyme diseases real quick, because they are important. Um, in fact, in, in Southern Vermont, about two years ago, anaplasmosis sort of overtook Lyme in, in prevalence, at least by the testing. So let's just call them equivocal in their prevalence. What about babesiosis? How much uh, babesiosis is the state uh, seeing reported? Yeah, so um, just quickly on Lyme, Lyme is still our most uh, common tick-borne disease um, in Vermont. Like I said, we see anywhere from 500 to 1,000 confirmed and probable cases each year. Anaplasmosis is a, a, a close second and actually um, still steadily on the rise. We, we've seen over many years a slow, slow rise in Lyme disease cases, but anaplasmosis seems to be kind of a quicker rise um, where we're seeing um, uh, 200 to 500 cases per year. Um, and then babesiosis is our third most common tick-borne disease in Vermont. And from during 2005 through 2018, we have about an average of eight cases Per year, so um, a lot, a lot less. Um, but important to note about babesiosis is it's not a, it's not a bacterial disease like Lyme disease and anaplasmosis. So it's not um, susceptible to the common antibiotics that we have. Um, so it's really uh, important to recognize that disease in in, in a patient. And you can have co-infections as well. Um, and then lastly, we've got um, Another one that I mentioned that's very brand new to the state and to the region in general is called Borrelia miyamotoi disease. So it's a, uh, a bacterial pathogen related to Lyme disease. It's also a spirochete and also susceptible to the, you know, the same antibiotics that we use for Lyme disease. Um, we first found it in the state or was reported in the state in a human in uh, 2016. Um, and then to date, we've only had about 40 Borrelia miyamotoi infections. And the, the important difference to make between those, the, the other three diseases and Borrelia miyamotoi is the other three diseases are nationally notifiable, which means we have a national case definition. It's required to do surveillance for them and report up to the CDC that those are happening so they can you know, aggregate those case counts and report it um, at, on the national level. But Borrelia miyamotoi is not yet a nationally reported disease, but we have um, put it, uh, made it as reportable in our state so we can make sure we are keeping track of those cases um, and those are being reported to the health department. We are detecting them so we can keep an eye on um, how many people are affected by that disease each year. That's great. And I, I will say um, to, to add to some of that as far as recognition. So the state only knows 
what's reported to them. And um, testing does vary. You know, fortunately in, in Southern Vermont, um, and actually most of Vermont, but I'm reporting here from Southern Vermont, uh, we actually have a, a testing um, that we've arranged with our infectious disease physician, Dr. Marie George, as well as several uh, primary care uh, physicians and in our laboratory. And we typically test for um, all diseases. We've got a bundled test. Um, the initial cost is a little bit more, but then the gain is incredible because we get results on all of those. And you can have that co-infection which is how we picked up the babesiosis uh, in this area. So, so that's important. I know people get concerned about testing. They read on the internet. I will say testing has advanced uh, tremendously. And anywhere in Vermont, you should be comfortable with the test that your provider is, is running. You know, when we go talk about, oh, go ahead. Anna. I was just going to add something about, you made a really good point about surveillance as well. And I just want to follow up on that, that it's, it's not perfect. We can only report on, and so these, our numbers are estimates. So we can only report on what, you know, aggregate numbers of what we know about. So it takes someone going to the doctor, getting tested, um, and, and then reporting it to us. And then, you know, it's getting the information we need to classify it as a case based on those national case definitions. So I just want to make sure that everyone knows that, that these are estimates. There could be more cases out there that we don't know about. Right. In fact, there certainly are um, many physicians uh, with classic presentations are very comfortable treating uh, uncomplicated Lyme anaplasmosis based on symptoms without testing. And, and we don't need to. And the test and the treatment is effective. And um, so so everyone needs to be I have had patients be concerned when testing isn't done and, and it's not always indicated uh, again. It's um, good collaboration with the state and, and infectious disease experts uh, in, in that realm. So we, we learn a lot or we, we tell patients a lot about the life cycle of a tick. If you go to any website, uh, including the De Department of Health's website, it always throws this up and it talks about the mice and the deer. Why is that important that, that uh, we understand that as scientists and why do patients care, do you think? So what's important about the tick life cycle and the diseases that we, can, you know, we see, the tick-borne diseases we see in Vermont is that they're all transmitted by the same species of tick. So, which is great because then all of our same prevention measures will help to prevent all of those diseases. So um, it is, they're all transmitted by the black-legged tick, Exodes scapularis, and it has a two-year life cycle in four stages. So it's got egg, larvae, nymph, and adult. So after hatching from eggs, the tick needs a blood meal to move to the next stage of each life cycle. So that's the important thing. Number one is they need to feed on a host. So that can be an intermediate um, mammalian host or bird, or it could be a human, it could be a dog. Um, so tick, tick larvae that are hatched from eggs are not hatched and in infected. They're not, they're not born infected. Um, and so they need to, feed on an intermediate host that is carrying the pathogen of uh, whatever, you know, disease we're talking about. And then once they molt into their next life stage, they, that tick is then infected and then can transmit to another host, whether it be another mammal or a human and humans and dogs are considered um, sort of a, a incidental hosts but then they cause disease in, in humans. So the important thing about these tick life cycles is that we see ticks only abundant certain times of year. And so that helps us understand too and how to detect uh, the disease in people when they come to the, you know, their, their doctor's office. So ticks, um, tick nymphs, which is the stage after larvae, 
are most um, abundant in the spring and summer. And they're the most, uh, are the biggest culprit, I would say, for transmitting uh, Lyme disease and anaplasmosis to humans. So we do see our, a rise in cases most often in the summer. And then it's important to note that we do get a, a bump in adult ticks in the fall who are also capable of transmitting Lyme disease and anaplasmosis. So we kind of have this secondarily, uh, secondary hump, especially in anaplasmosis in the fall. That's when adult females are getting their last blood meal before they go dormant for the winter. Wow. So that's, yeah. So it helps us understand when to be most on the lookout for ticks um, and prevent tick bites. That's great. Yeah. And as far as um, in our own system, our own health system, you know, the diagnosis, of course, mirror that. Uh, we do see people with um, sequelae or first identification, particularly of Lyme disease in off months, but very few, you know, in the single digits, as opposed to the summer months, spring months, where uh, we can hardly even count the number of, of patients that come in. Fortunately, the treatment is very successful. Uh, but before we get into the treatment, let me just ask you a little bit about what do you do personally? So I'm going to make this a personal question uh, in prevention, especially considering the fact that you have a, a running partner who has four legs. <laughs> yes. So I like to break down tick bite and tick-borne disease prevention into four things, protect, check, remove, and watch. So first protect, right? Avoid where ticks live. They live in wooded, brushy areas if you can't avoid it. So stick to the center of the trails. Unfortunately, our four, four-legged friends like to wander a bit more. And so they're more prone to getting those tick bites. Yes. And we know that's a risk for humans because they can carry ticks inside. Um, so before going out, especially during these, like I said, these most abundant tick, um, tick times of year, wear EPA registered tick repellents on yourself. Um, I like to also treat at least one or two pairs of clothing or outdoor clothing with um, products containing uh, uh, permethrin. And that is something you spray on your clothing, not on yourself. And it lasts through several washes, and that's really effective on, on preventing ticks getting on your body. Uh, similarly, talk to your vet about what tick prevention products is best for your for your pets, for your cats and dogs. There are spot-on treatments, chewable tablets, there's collars. Um, and then for uh, one other protect step is cover up to keep ticks off your body. Wear light-colored clothing so you can see ticks crawling. You can brush them off. Um, and, and then they don't, you have actually a barrier between the skin and, um, and ticks. And then if, you know, after being outdoors, you want to check for ticks. That is a really important step. Um, don't let them hitchhike inside, um, on your clothing or pets. So you can, you can immediately remove the clothing that you were wearing outdoors, put it in a, a hot dryer for 10 minutes. That'll kill any ticks that have been crawling on your body. Um, you want to check your whole body for ticks after soon after being outdoors. Uh, one good method is showering soon after be out, being outdoors within two hours. It, it washes off any unattached ticks and gives you a good opportunity to check all over your body. And so if you do find a tick attached, I mean, obviously if it's not attached, you could brush, brush it off and, and dispose of it. But if you do find one attached, you want to remove the tick as soon as you can. The longer a tick is attached to your body, the more opportunity uh, there is for a transmission of the pathogen it might be carrying. Um, and stick to removal methods that, that are proven to work. There are some methods that are um, not proven to work like using um, petroleum jelly or a match or things like that. Um, and then after removing a tick, you always wanna watch for symptoms of tick-borne illness. 
um, for, you know, at least 30 days after you've taken off a tick, especially if it was on your body for more than 24 to 48 hours. And then if you do get symptoms or feel sick, such as like a flu-like illness in a weird time of year, like summer, you know, COVID kind of complicates that these days. Um, but, you know, talk to your healthcare provider if you, you feel ill. Absolutely. You know, so I have to emphasize something. I'm so glad, Natalie, to hear you uh, emphasize something that I also emphasize. And so if you say something I agree with, of course, I'm going to love it, right? Um, and that is taking a shower after being outdoors. Um, it's That's not emphasized enough. And actually, I've seen people who are kind of nervous to go on a hike or nervous to get out because they're so worried about ticks. And we don't want you to be worried about ticks. Being outdoors and experiencing life is, is so important. But when you get back and you've, and you've checked yourself, as Natalie says, and you've um, uh, looked at your clothes, taking that shower is incredibly effective. Uh, as she said, removing the unattached ticks, but it gives you that opportunity to do that self tick check. We all come in and plan to, and then something happens, the phone rings, we get busy and we don't do it. And the next thing you know, we've gone to bed and forgotten about it. So taking that shower is so important. Um, we did have a couple of questions about treatment. I just want to jump into, there were some questions about um, what novel treatments are out there. What's the current treatment? So the, the current treatment uh, remains and remains highly effective. And that's typically doxycycline. You can use amoxicillin if you have a problem with doxycycline, but doxycycline is generally well tolerated. Uh, the duration is 10 to 21 days for most tick-borne, uh, not the BCOSIS, but the other three tick-borne type illnesses in this area, sometimes up to 28 days for certain neurologic symptoms. I'm going to stop there because it's a lot more of a discussion we can go into on another show, but really important for you to have uh, in the audience with your physician. I know that there are some that uh, push for much longer treatments uh, with doxycycline that has not been shown to have any greater effect. Um, but again, you can have that conversation with your um, provider. And on removal, I think, I think there are maybe 833,000 ways to remove a tick. Uh, depending on who you're talking to. Um, I will say there are some, you know, you have to try the different ones that Natalie was talking about looking online, but there are some that just don't work as well as others. And one that really works for me, and I'm just going to tell you my own experience in the emergency department, because we remove ticks off people all the time, is to use this, uh, this, it's called a tick key. I wish I had one. I probably do. But by the time I found it and brought it out, um, we'd be done with the show. It's, uh, it's uh, um, something that costs about a dollar. You know, it's probably got a patent on it, but it just works really well. There's tick spoons. I don't have as good luck with that. We have those in our emergency department. Um, you should not use a match. You can try while you're waiting for to find your tick key or tweezers. You can try to circle the tick with a Q-tip. Um, I was completely floored when someone showed me how to do this 10 years ago, and I use it ever since. And I, I get about a 25 to 50% success rate. Sit there, circle the tick close to it, like you're circling uh, on uh, with a pin, like you're using a pin, except you're using Q-tip. Have you, have you done this before, Natalie? Mm -hmm. And it's crazy about the quarter of the time the tick just starts crawling around. I think you aggravate it so much that it starts to remove from the skin. So um, you can find that out there as well in the literature. It doesn't work very well on dogs. I've tried it. The dogs move too much and they have too much hair to get in the way. Um, we're unfortunately out of time. This has been awesome. We're going to have you back in the late summer or so if you would be willing. And uh, 
Hopefully, Natalie and I were talking before we went live here. We'd love to do some in-person things uh, once the 4th of July gets by and we can uh, start getting out in the public. So um, let me just end here and say uh, thanks everyone for joining us uh, this week. Um, thank our guest, Dr. Natalie Quitt. Uh, thank Mike Cutler from CAT TV, Ray Smith from Southwestern Vermont Healthcare, Ashley Jowett from Southwestern Vermont Healthcare, who helped make this program. I'm Trey Dobson. Go out and find joy in everything you do, even in the face of adversity. We have some exciting shows coming up, and uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs>